Well, good morning, all you non-Carolina fans. I, uh, all your Carolina-loving brothers and sisters in Christ were at the 9 o'clock service or here last night. Uh, if you have your Bible, I want you to take it out right now. I want you to open it to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, I ask you every week if you have your Bibles, and the reason for that is there's just so much more that you can get out of this if you actually have a Bible in front of you. I feel like as your pastor, my goal is to help you read the Word of God better. And so as I go through these things, it helps if you have some notes that you take that you're able to reflect on throughout the week. Uh, I read somewhere, I think I've shared this with you, that uh, you only retain about 20% of what you hear in a lecture if you don't take notes, which uh, hurts my feelings a little bit. It uh, also kind of makes me depressed, but I know that one of the ways you can overcome that is by, uh, by just participating and seeing it and, and, and taking notes. So if you've got a pen, a pencil would be a good time to take that out, a pad of paper, you don't have those things, you tube a lipstick, mascara might work, prick your finger, jot some stuff in blood, whatever it takes. I want you to, to get into this and know this stuff because I'm going to give you five surprising things this morning about Jesus' kingdom, five things that were upside down in how he presented himself to the people that were expecting his coming. One of the things that you have to say about Jesus as you study him is that he provoked the strongest reactions in people. You'll see that as we go through the Gospel of Luke. He never provokes a neutral reaction. Jesus was and is the kind of guy that you either loved or you hated. In fact, that's, by the way, how you know that you've seen the real Jesus. You're either really offended by him or you're desperately in love with him. Paul, uh, the apostle, would say uh, that the Gospel was to those who some people, it was like the sweet aroma of life. Imagine the greatest smell that you've ever smelled. Maybe you're seven years old, it's your grandma's kitchen, she's cooking chocolate chip cookies. That aroma is just something so pleasing to you. He said that's what it is to some, but to other people it is like the stench of death, like a rotting corpse. The same gospel, the same Jesus that's preached provokes one of those two very strong reactions. Most people in our culture, you realize, have neither of those. Most of them are bored with Jesus. They think Jesus is nice, but he's kind of irrelevant. They don't hate Jesus, but uh, they certainly um, are just at the best apathetic about him. And that proves that they've never really understood him. They've never really encountered the real thing. Because the things that Jesus said both about you and about himself will either make you so mad that you want to crucify him, or you become so dependent on him and so loyally committed to him that you dramatically re-alter your life around him so one of those two reactions is going to be true if you've seen the real thing love or hate one thing that's impossible is for you to really have heard the message to understand him and have a lukewarm wishy-washy he's nice but kind of irrelevant somebody i hang out with on sundays kind of reaction all right luke chapter 4 verse 16 let me give you the context before i jump into it up until now jesus has lived a pretty normal life you know, except for the occasional Doogie Hauser confound the professors when you're 12 years old in the temple moment, except for that, and a million angels showing up at his birth, that was kind of significant, except for a couple of events like that, for the most part, he's been unnoticeable. He's about 30 now, he's single, he's worked in his dad's carpentry business for the last several years, nothing notor notorious about him, nothing of notoriety, he's just a normal guy. Verse 16, he comes to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. See, Jesus went to church every week. The Sabbath, by the way, was on a Saturday. And because Jesus attended the Briar Creek campus, he went on Saturday when all the other real Christians went uh, to church. And, uh, and he stood up to read. He stood up to read verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. 
He enrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant. And then he sat down. That's all. That's all. Jesus did not preface that with Isaiah says or God says. He just reads in the first person. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and me to help the blind recover their sight. And then he just sits down. This next part is awesome. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I mean, can you feel the awkwardness of the moment? They're looking at him and, like, and he's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is what we would call an on-the-spot sermon. Now, I realize that probably not that many of you have had an experience with this where you were suddenly called on to speak about something that you've not done any preparation for. Um, I've had it happen to me a few times for, for various reasons. In fact, just out of curiosity, just so I, I know who can identify with my pain, how many of you have ever been called on to give a speech that, that you should have prepared for but did not know about until the moment that it was upon you? Raise your hand for just a minute. Okay, that's actually more than I was thinking. You put your hands down. It happened to me a couple months ago. Um, I was speaking at a, a church leadership conference with a good friend of mine. We both did the, the main session, the, the plenary session, and then everybody was going to breakouts, and my friend and I hadn't seen each other in a long time, so we were going to get a cup of coffee together. And so we're headed out to the car to get coffee, and this like intern college student runs out of the church and says, Dr. Greer, Dr. Greer. Now, first of all, I don't even recognize that name. Uh, so he had to chase me all the way down to the car, and I'm about to get into the car, and he says, now, you know where your seminar is, right? I was like, no, nah, I, I don't. Can you, can you tell me where my seminar is? He's like, yeah, well, what are you doing here at your car? And I was like, I was just trying to make sure it was still here. And there it is. So, yeah. Um, where is this seminar? So he starts walking me on my seminar, and as I'm walking, uh, following him, I'm trying to figure out a way to ask him what my seminar is about without letting him know that I don't haven't prepared the first thing for this day. So he tells me it's something about, you know, leading a church, evangelistic church or something like that. And so we get back into the room and the room is packed out with people. And I walk up front and I'm like, you know, before I tell you guys what I think about this, I want to know what you think about this uh, subject. And we, we did question and answer for several minutes until I could manage to pull something together. But boy, what Jesus is doing here is kind of an on-the-spot sermon. And so what he does is he's handed the role, the, the scroll of Isaiah, and he's like, hmm, what could I share from Isaiah? Oh, I know, a prophecy about me. This reminds me of the time that my dad sent me to earth to save all you people. That's, that's what he does, right? Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This is a pretty positive reaction, right? Like, wow, man, this guy's pretty cool. I mean, this is what they've been waiting for. They've been waiting for somebody that could, could, could bring healing to their sick. You know, somebody that could set the captives free. Who were they thinking about, by the way? Themselves. They were captives to Rome. They're thinking this is the Messiah who's going to set us free. And, and hey, when we're talking about setting at liberty those who are oppressed, we're the ones that are oppressed. Today's the day. This is the day of the Lord's favor. Bring it on, Messiah boy. But their admiration and wonder is also mixed with a little unbelief. Do you see the next phrase? They say, but wait, isn't this Joseph's son? Joseph the carpenter guy? Isn't this the son of the guy who made our kitchen table? And didn't we go with Judah for our living room furniture because Joseph's price was too high? I mean, it just screams ordinariness. Ordinariness. So Jesus says, verse 23, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. 
what you've done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Do the whole bread and the fish thing where you feed everybody. Do that. Walk on the water. Do that here. He said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. But Elijah was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. That's a story from 1 Kings 17 where there was a famine in Israel because of their idolatry and God sent the prophet, his prophet Elijah, to the house of a Gentile woman to multiply her flour and her bread so that she and her son would not die of the famine but would be be, be sustained all throughout it now here, here four things about this woman okay one she's a woman she's a gentile she's a widow and she's poor in the jewish book that's four strikes against you those are all signs that you are separated from the fold of god yet she is the only one that elijah goes to and jesus goes on look at this verse 27 and there were many lepers in israel in the time of the prophet elijah but none of them was cleansed only naaman the syrian that's a story, one of my favorites from the Old Testament, from 2 Kings, about the captain of the Syrian guard, a guy named Naaman. He was the captain of the army that was fighting against Israel. Okay, so we're talking like their chief enemy, and God sends Elisha, the prophet, to him because this guy's got leprosy. You know, leprosy is a disease where the nerves in your skin die, and then your skin ends up falling off. It's terrible. And there were lots of lepers at the time, and Israel, but Elisha is sent to Naaman, who is the captain of the enemy guard, and he's the only leper in all Israel that gets healed. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Why? I mean, he didn't say anything that was untrue, did he? He's just telling them stories about their enemies being loved by God. And aren't these the very people that are oppressing them? He said oppression, and they thought God was delivering them from the oppression of the Romans, but he's now telling stories about the Romans being freed from their hunger and from their diseases. Is there anybody that you hate so badly that you do not want God's mercy to be shown to them? I'll take that awkward silence as a yes. Maybe an ex-husband who just completely ruined your life. Maybe a friend who turned their back on you. Maybe a rival, maybe just a rival who you just can't understand why God seems to keep blessing them. You're no, they're no better than you. That you've done better than them, and they seem to be the one getting all the breaks. What did you do wrong? Verse 29. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down off the cliff. Yo, I've gotten a lot of negative reactions when I preached. I've never once had somebody trying to throw me off a cliff. I realize there's always a day for first, but please don't let that be today, okay? All right, verse 30. I love, I love this because I don't even know what it means. But passing through their midst, he went away. What does that mean? I mean, the only, I, I get the image here. You remember the Bugs Bunny cartoons where Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd would be fighting, and then Bugs Bunny would just walk out of the fight, and Elmer Fudd is left in a cloud of dust throwing punches at himself? That's the image that I get here. Is they're all, you know, kicking and screaming, shoving, and Jesus kind of backs out. You know, and moves off. He's fully in charge of the situation because he knows it's not his time to die yet. Here's the question that I want to use to drive the rest of our time here. And that is, what was it that made them so mad? What was it that ticked them off so badly that in the space of one sermon, they went from nudging each other to like, isn't this guy awesome, to let's take this guy and throw him off a cliff? I'll give you five things, okay? Here they go. Number one, Jesus' kingdom included people of other ethnicities. Jesus' kingdom included people of other ethnicities. Jesus had not just come for the Jews. 
from the very beginning, God's intention had been to use Israel to take salvation to the other nations, but they were like us. They were like, like us, God, thank you so much for blessing us, and thank you for blessing our families, and please help our children come to know you, but not giving a whole lot of thought like we don't to the, right now, 6,931 unreached people groups in the world who are people just like you, made in the image of God just like you, who are as precious to God as you are. And so we focus on what God is doing in our families and give little thought to what God is doing or not doing in places around the world. But see, God had chosen the Jews not just to bless them for their sake, but Genesis 12, God chose Abraham and his descendants to make them a blessing to others by carrying this salvation to others. So Jesus shows up and starts pointing that out to them, that this is about the Gentiles receiving mercy. And the Jewish people had a problem with that because they were like all of us, at least in our nature, they were a little racist. You know, people tend to prefer people of their own race and culture for two primary reasons. First of all, racism arises out of insecurity. Or insecurity that you feel like there needs to be something about you that distinguishes you from other people to give you some sense of self-worth. A lot of times we choose like our intelligence, sometimes we choose how good looking we are or you know, how, how, how good of a person we are. But sometimes you choose something about yourself in terms of like your whole race or your whole culture. By the way, don't just think color of your skin. Also think your culture. You think that your group of people is superior to other groups of people and you look down on them and it is arising out of an insecurity that feels like there's got to be something about you that distinguishes you from others so that you have any worth. So racism arises out of insecurity because it looks down on whole races of people as a way of establishing your own superiority and worth. All right, second, one of the reasons that people of one race tend to hang out with each other and not others is we just prefer to be around people who are like us, right? We just prefer to be around people who share our same educational experiences, who look like us, make about the same kind of money we do. We like to be around people who are like us. Jesus' gospel would turn racism on its head. It would, it would shatter racism because it showed us that there was nothing about us that would earn God's favor. God would give his favor to us as a gift that we received because none of us were worthy of it. It was a gift. Peter, the chief apostle, was racist. You can find where Paul confronts Peter over his racism in Galatians chapter 2, and it's fascinating what he says to him. He says, Peter, 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 the gospel says that when we were outsiders, Jesus came to us. Peter, the ultimate outsider, the ultimate outsider is not there because of the color of his skin. The ultimate outsider is there because of the wickedness of their heart. And Peter, if Jesus came to us when our hearts were wicked, does it make any sense that we would now look at people and keep them on the outside because of the color of the skin or the tone of their dialect? Peter, racism makes no sense in the gospel because there's nothing about you that distinguishes you. It's God's mercy that's given as a gift to all who are to our sinners. And see, what happens, watch this, when you realize that, when you realize that there is nothing about you that distinguishes you from anybody in God's sight, that there is a common problem, sin, and there's a common solution, the mercy of Jesus given in the blood of Jesus Christ, when you realize, watch, that commonality becomes weightier to you than even your cultural preferences. It's not that you don't have cultural preferences anymore. It's just that gospel unity begins to matter more to you than cu and cultural preference. Because that common bond that you have, that common salvation you've experienced in Jesus, trumps all your cultural preferences. You see, when you've got a group of people who look alike, 
That's not amazing. Not amazing to anybody. But when you've got people of different cultures come together around Jesus, that puts Jesus on display because it makes people ask the question, what is it that is bringing these group of people together? You've got a large group of people who all look the same. They're like, that's a rock concert. That's a group of people who hang out throughout the week anyway. But when you come together around nothing else except for the gospel of Jesus, it blows people's mind. And when putting on display that beauty becomes more important to you than your cultural preferences, that is when you become a multicultural church. There's a group of people here at the summit, and I say this without any flattery or any rhetoric. There's a group of people here at the Summit Church who are my heroes. You see, we know that to be a good testimony to the city of Raleigh-Durham, that we need to be diverse, right? But let's just be honest. We're a lot more white than the population of Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill. Maybe not Chapel Hill, but Raleigh-Durham. We're a lot, we're, we're a lot, we don't really reflect the demographics around here as well. And we got a group here of African-American believers and some Hispanic believers and some Asian believers who have chosen to come here even though we are not always the same style that some of them grew up with. And they have told me consistently, I can handle the style differences here because I love the gospel here. And they are my heroes. Because the gospel matters more to them than their personal preferences. So let me use that as an opportunity to say something to you whiteies, right? And that is, if you're going to be part of a multicultural church, then you are going to have to be a part of things that you don't necessarily like and prefer. But you are going to love the unity and the beauty of Christ's body more than you love a preferred style. Listen, you would not believe the comment cards that we get here from people who come and visit our church. I mean, I, you, I, I just ought to put all these up on the internet sometimes. The music is too loud. The music is not loud enough. I don't like people standing up and raising their hands. I don't like people talking back to the preacher when he, when he speaks. I wish people stood up more. The pastor used too many jokes. The pastor used my comment card in his sermon telling everybody what I said. <laughs> and he, listen, you know, here's what I've concluded now after being a pastor for eight years. A lot of people want to be a part of a multicultural church in theory, as long as that means everybody else conforms to your culture. For us to be a multicultural, multi-generational church, all of us are going to have to give. So you white people, does he know that he's white? Yes, I do, okay. <laughs> you white people cannot help it that you were born white. But you don't have to be a tidy whitey, okay? Write that down. We, we, listen, there is something that proves that you've understood the gospel. And that is when the unity of Jesus becomes more beautiful to you than even cultural preferences and the beauty of a diverse body of Christ becomes more weighty to you than just what you like and what you don't like, the flavor of the coffee you like, how you like the music. That's what puts Jesus on display. I recently had a, a chance to have breakfast with a very famous Christian leader. His name is Bill Hybels. He's pastor of the Willow Creek Community Church, which is right outside of Chicago. This, the church is literally 25,000 people large. Okay, and so I'm sitting there having um, breakfast with him, and he's telling me, he, he says, I want to tell you about some mistakes that I've made over the years as a pastor. And a uh, very humble man. But, so he goes, starts to explain these, and, and the first one he says is, is he said, if I could do it over again, I would not build my church based on the homogeneity principle. Now, that may not make much sense to you, but the homogeneity principle was something that he was the one that, 
that, that made famous. And that was that you could grow your church more quickly if you aimed at a specific slice, a specific strata of your community. So if you reach people of one class, of one race, of one educational level, you could blow a church up, and it was exactly right. I mean, he grew his church to 25,000 people, and he said, if I could do it over again, I would not do that. I would have my church reflect the demographics of his community. It would be diverse. And so wanting to play devil's advocate a little bit, I was like, well, I mean, really? I mean, because it was so successful for you. You got 25,000 people. And he said, yeah. He said, but that doesn't matter. So again, wanting to play devil's advocate, I said, so you're telling me that even if your church had only been half as big, half as big, using this diversity principle that it would have been if it was everybody looking alike, you'd be okay with that? He said, he said yes. And again, playing devil's advocate, I said, you're telling me that you would be willing to send 12,000 people to hell so that you could have a diverse church. Without batting an eye, he looked back at me and said, absolutely. And I said, how could you say that? He said this, I thought it was profound. He said, because the testimony to Jesus that would result from the church in the United States being racially diverse would be more evangelistically effective than would be a number surge at any one congregation. And I completely agree with him. If the church is a place where people come together in a way that says Jesus matters more to us than anything else. That becomes a miracle that the community, it blows their minds. And it shows that the gospel has taken root among a people. So Jesus was surprising because he said this is not all about one ethnicity. Number two, Jesus' kingdom included people with dark past and present struggles. Jesus' kingdom included people with Dark past and present struggles. Everybody thought that when God showed up, he would reward the righteous and punish the wicked. And when Jesus shows up and starts telling stories about God loving the unrighteous and showing mercy to them, that makes the religious people mad, right? Because nothing ticks off a rule keeper like seeing people who don't keep the rules rewarded, right? I mean, just imagine like, like when you applied for college. You know, I mean, you work hard, you study, you get your SAT, scores up, you do a lot of extra extra curricular activities you do your community service and you keep your grades high and you turn in your application and then the school comes out and announces uh-uh we're giving our entry spots to the people who goofed off in high school we're giving it to people who aren't qualified that makes you mad right you're like that's not fair but when you say that get this watch when you think that about god you demonstrate that you don't understand yourself at all because the truth of the gospel is that none of us come anywhere even close to earning God's favor. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah here. Isaiah has a statement about religious people that is shocking and disturbing. And if this verse has never made you wince, and this verse has never made your stomach crawl a little bit, you've never understood it. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The reason that's supposed to make you wince is because the word he used in Hebrew for filthy rags is a word that was translated one of two ways. One would be menstrual rag. All your righteousness, religious people, to God is like a filthy rag. It's not just dirty, it's defiled. The other way that that would be translated is a rag that was used to wrap a leper whose skin was rotting and falling off. That's why the whole story about Naaman is there. He's like, hey, your righteousness to God is like a filthy rag. You see, leprosy was a disease of the body that symbolized disease of the soul. And what he is telling these people is, Naaman had leprosy of the body, but God came for people with leprosy of the soul. And your religion just covered up your sinful hearts, and our religion itself is usually stained with sin. 
And when we're mad that God doesn't reward the rule keepers, we tend to talk like we are the rule keepers. Listen, I've been in religious context all of my life, from the time I was born. I mean, you just, I mean, that's the one place I've always been is in church. I mean, you've heard me say that the only drug problem I ever had as a kid was getting drugged to church every single week, multiple times. I've been in religious context a lot, and I can tell you this. I have seen that the real sins, the real ones, pride, hate, selfishness, self-righteousness, those things can be just as present, if not more so, in religious circles. We're all lepers. We're all filthy before God. And God could not simply show up and reward the people who act righteously because there are none. And so when we object to God showing mercy to great sinners, it shows that we don't understand what kind of sinners we were. Because the only reason I would ever object to God showing somebody else mercy is that I don't understand how much mercy God has shown to me. See, I know, I know that you guys agree with that in theory. But do you really believe that? Because if you really believed it, it would fundamentally change how you see people with dark past and present struggles. It means that you would look at them not with disdain, you would look at them with a sense of empathy that says you and I are the same. If you and I really got this, it would change how we forgive those who hurt us. It would change how you forgive your spouse. Because you would recognize in that person who is wounding you, you would recognize the same stuff that is in yourself that God has forgiven you of, and it would give you a tenderness and a sense of mercy to those with deep dysfunction, who have wounded you badly, who have dark past and present struggles. If we really understood that. That's why I say, I know we all say, man, we all nod our heads and preach it, brother, but do we really get it? Because I think our lives might look differently if we did. I was, um, a friend of mine, a uh, guy named Matt, was telling me about one time he was at um, a, a True Love Weights rally. Now, if you haven't been around church, you may not know what that is, but True Love Weights rally is, is, a, is this kind of like rally they do for, for high school uh, teenagers trying to convince them not to have sex till they get married. You know, which is a good thing, and, and I'm certainly not ripping all, all of them, but, but he was at this particular one, and he said that the guy gets up to speak, and he starts, the first thing he does, he holds up a rose. He holds up a rose, beautiful rose. He said, this is a, a rose. This represents a girl, a girl who is created by God. She's beautiful. She's precious. She's delicate. This is how God created every girl in the world. He says, then he takes this rose, and he hands it to a guy in the front row. He says, I want you to smell this rose. I want you to touch it. I want you to, um, to, to, to do that, and then I want you to give it to another guy. And just keep passing it around to all the guys in the room here have, have, have touched it. Then he goes on with his speech for about 30 minutes. When he's done with his speech, he says, now where's that rose? Right? And then he brings back up the rose to them. Of course, by this time, it's fallen apart. It's wilted. He holds up this rose that looks terrible now. And he says, here's this rose after all these guys in here have touched it. Who wants that thing anymore? And throws it away. And my friend said, he said he felt like it was about to come out of his skin. Because he wanted to say, Jesus wants that rose. I'm all for, listen, I am all for warning people about the dangers of sin, but the gospel is that Jesus loves sinners. And the gospel is that all of us, you and I, were the ones whose sin, whose leprosy had torn our soul apart so that we thank God Jesus wanted us. So that when we talk to people about the dangers of sin, we talk to them with a sense of, I have been accepted and received, not because I'm better than you, but because God in his mercy has given this to me, and he can give it to you. And Jesus wanted me, and that's a miracle, and he wants you, and that's a miracle, and you and I are the same. You see? Here's number three. Number three. Jesus' movement was not a political movement. Surprising thing about Jesus' kingdom, it wasn't a political movement. Jesus didn't fix the world by planting a new Christian nation. That's what they wanted. Listen, I want to be really clear on this one. 
I am for righteousness in government. I think there is a role for God's people to call for justice and righteousness in our governmental laws. That's what it means for us to be salt and light in our community. We know that God created this world. And while we would never, ever, ever want any government to mandate that other people have to worship God because that's not the kind of thing you can mandate, we do know that we need to conform our laws to how God has set up the universe, to act in accordance to his principles, laws that are based on the respect for the individual, respect for human autonomy and freedom and respecting life and justice. But while I believe all that, listen, I also know that Jesus' kingdom was not primarily or first about creating, creating a, new, a new nation, but, but by, uh, by creating a heart, a new heart within people. Our problem goes deeper than something politics and education can fix. Our problem, you see, goes down to the fundamental depravity of our hearts. Our root problem is that we don't love God. And so when Jesus says the sum of all the commandments is that you love God, I've explained to you that's a dilemma. Because how do you command that? If the root of all the commandments is that you love, how do you command that? I told you, if you go back to high school and, and your parents put beside you somebody and say, love him love her you can't be commanded to love love is a response the first time i saw my wife veronica i, I loved her i felt like i did because because of her beauty because of her character and the more that i've gotten to know her the more in love i fall with her it's a response to her to for jesus to simply show up and command us to educate us to create a nation of laws isn't actually going to change our hearts now, what Jesus' kingdom would end up doing, it would end up making the most profound changes in all parts of our lives and in our world and in our politics. But Jesus would say that it would start small. It would start as something in our hearts because that's the place it had to start. In fact, he compared it to a seed. Fascinating analogy that like, a lot of people look over. He said the kingdom of God is like a seed. A seed is small. A seed is something you can crush in your hands. You can eat it and digest it. Have you ever seen how much power a seed can actually have? You, you ever, like, I saw this at a graveyard the other day. Big marble slab, about that thick. Big crack running right down the middle of it. How'd that crack get there? It's because there was some tree that a root went underneath there and split that thing in two. You could never split that marble slab with a sledgehammer no matter how many times you hit it. But yet a seed that you could crush in your hand and your teeth and digest in a matter of hours had the power in it that smashed that thing open. Jesus said, my kingdom would be like that. It would be a seed that would have massive ramifications as it grew. Changes in your life, even political changes. The gospel is it took root in our society. That's what undid slavery. That's what ended up teaching us the equality of all people, equal rights for women. It created a just society. Ultimately, in heaven, there will be the most just, fair society we could ever conceive of. It's called God's shalom. But it didn't start with that new nation. It started small in the heart. That's where it has to start. I think you as individuals should be very involved in politics and education. I think you as God's people should be very involved in politics and education, living out the ramifications of the gospel. But as a church, we are not a political people. We are a gospel preaching people. Because that's how the kingdom of God goes forward now. In the hearts of people that the gospel transforms. Number four, Jesus would not immediately right all wrongs or end all suffering. Jesus would not immediately right all wrongs or end all suffering. Let me take you to another passage to show you this one because it's, it's sort of talked about there in Luke 4, but it's really kind of fleshed out later in Luke chapter 7. So flip over three chapters from Luke 4, go to Luke chapter 7, 
We're going to be in verse 18. Now you remember that Jesus, what he said was he'd come to give sight to the blind, to free the captives, to set the oppressed free. There's a little problem in Luke chapter 7, and that is because John the Baptist, who was the prophet of God that announced his coming and Jesus' cousin, is in prison. He's in prison. What's he in prison for? He's in prison for telling Herod that he should not be sleeping with his brother's wife, which is the kind of thing Herod should probably have known. But he didn't, and John the Baptist had to tell it to him, and it ticked Herod off. So Herod throws him in prison and sets an execution date where he's going to cut off his head. So John the Baptist has a few questions for Jesus. This is verse 18. The disciples of John reported to John all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord Jesus, saying, Are you the one that is to come, or shall we look for another? What's behind that question? What's behind that question? Jesus, you promised to set the captives free and to give sight to the blind. I'm the prophet of God. I'm a good guy. I'm your cousin. I'm your cousin. And I'm in prison awaiting execution. I'm going to be beheaded. How could you be that Messiah and I be in this situation? Some of you have had that exact same question, haven't you? God, how could all this be true? How could all this be true when these things are going on in my life? Why am I still suffering? Why aren't I being rewarded? Well, the disciples of John asked that question. Here's how Jesus answers them. Verse 21. In that very hour, right in front of all of them, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, and he said, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. That was quite an hour, right? Verse 23, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Here's the thing, y'all, watch. Jesus didn't answer John the Baptist's question. He did not answer why John the Baptist was still in prison. What he showed him was that he indeed had the power that showed that he was the Messiah. And he says, John, I'm not going to answer your question right now, but I am going to show you who I am. And you tell John that blessed is the one who doesn't lose faith in me, who's not offended by me, by me because I don't do what he thinks I should do. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you that real faith arises at the intersection of the inexplicable and the undeniable? Real faith occurs when the inexplicable meets the undeniable? That's what's happening with John. The inexplicable. Why is Jesus' cousin, why is the prophet of God in prison? He doesn't give him an explanation. What he puts in front of him is the undeniable. If you're going to be a person of faith, there are going to be things that you are not going to understand. And it's not a blind leap into the dark. I'm not telling you to check your brain at the door. I'm just saying that faith is the inexplicable, meaning the undeniable. And saying, because of what I do understand, I'm going to accept some things that I cannot understand because I know the one who is speaking in the things I can't understand. Let me tell you how this played out for me. I've had a lot of doubts in my life. I know people sometimes don't believe that because you're like, you're a pastor and you're just born this way. That's not true. In college, I went through a terrible time of doubt. I have times of doubt that come up. Sometimes the questions I feel like I can't answer. I, I remember, you know, the Trinity. That was a big one. I mean, how do you really explain the Trinity? You know, three and one, one and three, the one in the middle died for me. I know the poems, okay? But how do you really explain that? Why is there a hell? Why is there suffering? Why did what happened in Japan just happen? Why is there 
this and this happening in my life? Why is this or that happening in your life? And there have been times and are times when it's just, I don't know the answer. But on the other hand, listen, I see that Jesus really is who he says he is. It just seems so obvious to me that Jesus really raised from the dead. I just don't know any other plausible explanation for the events of Jesus' life other than that he really was who he said he was. And I've read scores of books by skeptics. Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Robert White, Bart Ehrman, giving explanations for what was going on, what happened in the first century that made all these people believe you know, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And to be totally honest with you, I say this not with malice, not meanly, not disrespectfully, their explanations seem so contrived to me. And it's obvious to me that the reason they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus has very little to do with the actual evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and everything to do with the implications of what would be true if the resurrection of Jesus really happened. Namely, that there is a God of love who rules the world in justice. And they don't see how that could possibly be true in light of all the suffering that is going on in the world. And because they can't explain it, they choose to reject what seems to me to be undeniable because of the inexplicable. See, what's happened is I've come to things, I, I, mean, I can give you reasons and answers for all the things I just said. And I can give you some, you know, I can tell you about the Trinity, and I can tell you what God's doing in suffering a little bit, and I can try to explain to you the fairness of hell. But at the end of the day, y'all, my faith rests on the undeniable. I hold on to the undeniable in the face of the inexplicable. There are things I do not understand that I believe because of what I can't understand, and that is that Jesus is who he says he was, and he rose from the dead. Let me share with you a couple verses that have been anchors in my life. I'll do it really quickly. Deuteronomy 29, 29. I love this verse. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. You know why I love that verse? Because there's a little phrase in it that ticks people who think they're smart off. It's a little phrase, the secret things. Here it is, you ready? There are secret things that you're never going to understand. You might as well go ahead and deal with it, genius. Why? Because you're not God. Yes, I know you're smart. Yes, I know that you got into such and such university. But until you create your own universe, you ought to keep a little humility to yourself, okay? <laughs> there are secret things, and God does not tell you to quit asking questions. God loves you to ask questions. He loves to expand your mind. But he's just saying at the end of the day, there are things that are secret and there are things that are revealed. And sometimes you have to live with the tension of the inexplicable because of the revelation that is undeniable. Here's another one. I love this one. Psalm 131. Real short chapter. I love it. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great, too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Let's be honest. You guys, that analogy doesn't connect with you, does it? You know, the image of being cradled in Jesus' arms and him blowing in your face. You know, I, I realize that, okay? But not every analogy in the Bible is written for dudes. But it doesn't mean that there's not something in there for you to learn. And what's in there for you to learn is there's a time when we are to God, almost like a child with a parent, where we cannot understand what is happening, what is going on. But what we do understand is how much we love and trust that parent whose arms we are in. And we see this all the time with our kids, right? My kids have all kinds of questions. I've explained this to you about how I rule the Greer household. They don't understand it sometimes. And Daddy, why can't we play with the hairdryer in the bathtub? I mean, it makes this cool, like, you know, circle thing in the water there. It, it would be awesome, and it would dry us off while we're in the bathtub. And I'm like, I'm trying to explain it to you, but I can't. 
Here, here's a new one. Dad, why can't we take off our seatbelts and hang our heads out the window as we drive down the interstate? Dogs do it, and they're fine. <laughs> and I would like to be able to explain to you why exactly, but I just can't do it for now. You've got to trust me that I'm your daddy. I'm your daddy, and there's some things that she can't get yet. I, I got a five-year-old, and it's cute to watch her grapple with these new theological realities. And the other day, I heard her kind of whimpering a little bit, crying. And I was, I was like, what's wrong? She says, when Jesus comes back to earth, because we've been talking about Jesus you know, coming back to earth and us going to meet him in the clouds, and she's like, how am I going to get to him? How am I going to get up there in the clouds? I don't know how to fly. I'm like, don't worry about it. Jesus will take you up there. Oh, what if, he, what if I can't do it? I'm like, he'll take care of getting you up to the clouds. For now, you just need to rest in who Jesus is. You see, I've told you this before, but the gap between my five-year-old's understanding and mine is not nearly even as great between my understanding and God's. And so there are times, like a weaned child, I'll sit with my mother and say, God, I don't understand. It's the inexplicable and the undeniable. I'm not telling you to check your brain at the door. I'm not telling you to have blind faith. I'm just telling you. Find out if God really was speaking in Christ, if God really was speaking in the Bible, and if so, you accept what you cannot understand based on what you can. There is a sweetness to rest in Jesus. I love the way the old hymn that I sang as a kid used to say, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. So John's like, if it's clear that you can set the captives free, why am I still in prison? And Jesus doesn't answer. He just points him to the undeniable that he has power. He says, there's some things I'm not going to explain now. I just want you to rest in the undeniable. Let me explain something to you about Jesus' miracles. I'll do this quick, but it's really important. That'll help you understand what's going on here. Jesus' miracles, get this, are you ready? Really deep, really quick. Jesus' miracles were called signs. Signs meant that they were pointing to something else, okay? A sign is like you make a sign, it points you, tells you about something. Jesus' miracles were signs. Jesus' miracles were not random magic tricks. He didn't go around pulling rabbits out of hats or that kind of thing, like, Jesus, prove you're the son of God, and he levitates 10 feet above the ground. Oh, you know, I mean, that would have certainly proved he had power. Turn Peter into a gopher, send him flying laps around the Sea of Galilee. I mean, that would have been awesome, catching bullets in his teeth before they had guns, that, that would have been awesome and proved that Jesus had power. But that's not what his miracles were like. His miracles always had a message. His kingdom was a kingdom of sight, not blindness, so he opened the eyes of the blind. His kingdom was a kingdom of health, not sickness, so he made the lame walk. His kingdom was a kingdom of everlasting life, not death, so he raised the dead, okay? So what you've got is his signs. And his signs are merely there to point to a message. He was, watch this, let me borrow a phrase here, he was sketching out in pencil what one day he would paint with indelible ink. His kingdom would make all these things permanent one day, but for right now, he is just proclaiming these things, giving demonstrations, and pointing them back to a message. What's fascinating about Jesus' miracles is that, is that whenever they got in the way of the message, he quit doing them. I'll give you an example, John chapter 6. Jesus feeds everybody, 5,000 people with, you know, with uh, what I told you is a Hebrew happy meal. You know, five loaves of bread and two fish. And everybody's like, man, this guy's awesome. This guy can make bread for everybody. This is the bread king. Let's make him king. Let's take him around the world. He can end world hunger. That's what I, you and I would have done too. What's Jesus do? Go on a world hunger crusade? No, he goes back up on a mountain and hides. And then comes down the next day and preaches to them about the fact that he is the bread of life. And the point of that miracle is not that he just puts food in stomachs, but that he restores God to the soul. And if his putting food in their stomachs is going to keep them from seeing the real message, which is that he is the bread of life which satisfies eternally, then he's going to quit feeding stomachs because that's not the point. The point is bread for the soul before food for the stomach. I'll give you another one, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Two dudes come to Jesus. 
they're angry. They're brothers. And one of them says, Jesus, he won't share the inheritance with me. Tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. I love Jesus' response. It's so rude. He looks back at him. He says, man, what, what have I got to do with this? This is a legitimate social justice complaint, correct? Does Jesus not care about social justice? Oh, yes, Jesus cares about social justice. The kingdom he has will be ultimately just. But what he does instead of resolving this issue is he preaches to both of them a sermon about greed, Luke 12, 16 through 21. And what he was saying to them is, yes, I want there to be justice in society, but more important to you is you learning to worship God, not your money. And if me resolving this issue is going to mask the real issue, and that is your heart learning to love God, then I'm not going to do it. See, what Jesus is doing is he's giving signs that are telling you to hope in the kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus will one day right all wrongs, but for now, he starts with wrong at its very root, and that is what we love and trust most. You see, if he gave too much immediate reward right now because of the way our hearts are, what would happen is we would start worshiping Jesus, not because of Jesus, but because of what we think Jesus can do for us. I mean, what would happen if, if suddenly this week I was able to credibly claim to you that next week everybody who trusts in Jesus was going to get, you know, a tenth of what their house was going to be like in heaven. So let's say a million dollars, because God's working on a great mansion for you up there, and he's going to give you a tenth of that right now. A million dollars to everybody who signs up with Jesus. Now, what does our church service look like next week? We got millions of people here who are not here because they love Jesus. They're here because they want a million dollars. And Jesus is a means to a million dollars. Jesus sometimes withheld blessing. He sometimes without healing because he wanted us to realize that, look, there are times when you're not going to get that because I need to know if I am more valuable to you than those things. You realize, realize, you guys realize that what God is going to give you in eternity makes a million dollars look like chump change. But it's separated from you just far enough that you have to perceive it by faith so that your coming to Jesus in this life will have more to do with a love for him than it does a love for reward. Same with healing and blessing. That's why it's absent sometimes. God wants to know if you're looking for him or if you're using him. Do you see how many times the word proclaim was used in that verse Jesus said? I'm proclaiming this kingdom. It's a message to be believed. I will demonstrate it through miracles. But the point is this message. I've heard people say sometimes before, Jesus never once turned a sick person away. That's not true. He left his cousin in prison to die. And that was because he was saying these things are about an eternal kingdom. And sometimes you're going to be separated from the earthly blessing because I need to know if you're in this for me or if you're using me. That leads me to number five, the last one. Jesus was focused on heart change, not external obedience. He was focused on heart change, not external obedience. Jesus taught that his most important work was changing our hearts to love and to trust God. He preached good news to the poor. And the best news for the poor was that God was restored to them. Because a poor man with Jesus really has everything, doesn't he? God is the most valuable treasure on earth. He's better than money. He proclaimed liberty to the captives. The greatest liberty that he speaks of is liberty from the slavery and love of sin. He gave sight to the blind because the greatest blindness is not being able to see the beauty and the glory of God. And so the greatest healing for blindness is being able to see the gloriousness and awesomeness of God. And how did he do those things? How did he give riches to the poor? How did he give sight to the blind? How did he set captives free? How did he do it? It's the next verse, verse 19, by proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. 
the Lord's favor is what produces all that healing in us. Understanding that God's favor is given to me as a gift that Christ purchased for me. See, that's what produces a new heart in me. That's what makes me draw close to God. Is when you realize that God is not angry at you. He has given you favor. And that favor has been given to you in the, the love of Jesus Christ. And when you see that, that all of a sudden makes you realize that he is a valuable treasure. That weans your heart away from a love for sin. And that sets you free from the captivity of sin. It helps you see God for who he is. And that's what he's talking about. When my kids think that I'm mad at them, when dad's being grouchy and selfish and irritable, they kind of hide from me. They kind of play in the other room. They kind of, you know, mope around the other side. When they know that I love, when I'm like, you know, daddy love to them, when I'm like, oh, how cute, you know, look at the way she just ate her cheerios, get a picture of that. You know, when, when, I'm, when I'm doing that, the kids just, they brighten up, they come, they want to sit in my lap. I take our five-year-old to a, a preschool, excuse me, a three-year-old to a preschool, and I love her teachers there, because when she walks in, they call her name, they yell, they're like, Raya! And she, her face brightens up, and she goes trucking over to him and sits on her lap. When you realize God's favor is upon you and not his anger, that it's given to you freely as a gift in Christ, see, what that does is it lets you see God for who he is. It lets you realize what the treasure he is, and it sets you free from the love of sin. The blind have received sight. The captives of sin are freed. And the poor have been enriched. That's what he's talking about in all of this, and it all comes to the favor of God. Now, one quick word of caution before I close here. That is, I don't want you to make a mistake and think here that because I've explained to you that there's a priority on the spiritual over the physical, that doesn't mean, that does not mean, listen, that we disconnect ourselves from the problems of the world. You see, because just like Jesus, listen, just like Jesus, we're to be out giving signs as well. Which means we are to find the poor and the oppressed and the blind in our community. And we are to show and demonstrate to them the love of Christ so that they can understand it. Which is why we as a church focus on the homeless and the orphans and the prisoners and unwed mothers and the high school dropouts in our community. Because we want to be in there, in their oppression and in their sickness and in their poverty. Showing them that God is a God who enriches. God is a God who lifts up. God is a God who gives healing so that they can hear the message and believe. And just like Jesus gave signs, we give signs. And what I desperately want is for many of you to be out in the community preaching and demonstrating the gospel. I want you to go all around the world to places like Sudan and Afghanistan and Indonesia where people live in oppression and they live in poverty and they live in those places. And I want you to preach to them that God is able to set captives free. And I want you to demonstrate that like Jesus did by helping them find healing and empowerment and helping them get out of poverty. So the fact that we're all focused on Jesus' kingdom doesn't mean that we disconnect because we're going to give signs just like he does. That also, listen, this also doesn't mean that we don't take to God our request for physical healing. It doesn't mean that we don't ask him for deliverance from oppression. Jesus loves to heal and he loves to deliver. He doesn't change. That's what he was in the business of doing then. That's what he's in the business of doing now. And a lot of Christians who think they're doctrinally correct talk about God like he doesn't care about your pain of oppression or your physical healing. He just cares about your soul. That's idiotic. Jesus in the gospel can hardly resist somebody who's suffering who's in front of him. He doesn't change. Go to him now. He cares. You might find the same miraculous power in him that he demonstrated then. He might, listen, he might have a reason to say no, like he did to John the Baptist. And you should just trust him if he does, that he loves you and he has his reasons. But you just might find that he'll do for you what he did for so many back then. So go to him with your pain and your healing and your oppression and your injustice and ask him because he doesn't change he loves to work that kind of stuff
Here's the point. These people tried to throw Jesus off a cliff because he brought an unexpected kingdom. Listen. The kingdom he brought was unexpected because they had a problem they didn't realize they had. Jesus' kingdom is unexpected to you because you have a problem you probably don't realize you have. If you ever, listen, if you ever understood your problem, it would create in you such a love and a craving for Jesus. It would give you a passion for him that would consume your life. I don't mean the tip the hat, I'm kind of bored with Jesus because he's kind of irrelevant, so I go to him and put some money in the offering plate on Sunday and he's a nice guy. I, not that kind of, I mean a passion for him. Or you'll understand what he's actually saying about you and it'll make you so mad you want to crucify him, love or hate. Jesus presents a kingdom to you that is unexpected. He confirms it through the undeniable. Some of you are not going to have your questions answered yet. And we need to know. God offers and says, here's an invitation to this kingdom. Will you accept the undeniable, which is that I loved you enough to die for your sin, and I rose from the dead to show you that I have power. Will you accept the undeniable, and on the basis of that, be willing to live for some time with the inexplicable? It's a kingdom we didn't expect because it was a problem we didn't know we had. Jesus offers this kingdom then, and he offers it now, if you'll believe. At all of our campuses, if you would, if you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for a minute. The kingdom is a message that's announced, and the instructions are to repent and believe. Repentance simply means you acknowledge Jesus to be the Lord, for him to be the rightful king of your life. Believe means that you believe that he was doing what he said he did, which is saving you by dying the death that you've been condemned to die in your place. Believing means receiving. Repent means surrender. Believe means receive. If you've never done that, I would invite you, just like Jesus invited his audiences, to do that right now. To voice a prayer to God in your own words of repentance and belief. It's not magic words. It's not a magic prayer. But it's a confession of repentance and belief. Jesus, I surrender. You are Lord. Jesus, I believe that you did for me what I couldn't do for myself, and you saved me. Lord, this is a kingdom that is unexpected. God, teach us how deep you had to reach to save us so that we will be consumed with passion for you. Those who are forgiven much, we know, Father, they love much. Make us people who are, have their eyes open to ourselves and to Jesus so that we adore him. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.